Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Definitively Speaking, the podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare, and your host for this podcast. I'm joined today by my friends and colleagues, Brittany and Todd, for an afterwards discussion about our last episode, where Todd and I spoke with Tim Bossi, Senior Vice President of Talent Solutions at System One. Todd, Brittany, great to see you both again. I love that we're now recording back in person at the lovely Definitive Healthcare headquarters here in Framingham, Massachusetts. Absolutely. It's Very so fancy. nice to see your faces. It is. Yes. It's great to see you guys. So let me give you a second to reorient our listeners here, right? So last episode, we talked to Tim. And Tim works at System One, the 25th largest staffing company in the United States. And they really focus on recruiting specialized workforces, uh, particularly healthcare is one. And Tim's actually the leader of the healthcare practice at System One. And he recruits people for roles from like nurse leadership to clinical and scientific leadership to physician department leadership. And Todd, Tim, and I covered a lot of ground on that episode. We talked about the impact of the great resignation. We talked about the growing feeling of burnout in our healthcare workers. And we talked interesting for quite a bit of time on what healthcare senior executives, like the system run managers, need to do to retain their workforce. So, you know, Todd, get us started. What jumped out to you most about that conversation? So I, I think the first thing that jumped out to me was he's a Ravens fan. And why are we giving more airtime to a Ravens? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. So one of the things that he had said, you had asked about the rate of the resignations from, you know, the the people that are on the front lines and the management and leadership. And was it sort of seeing them at the same rate and flat out, he had no hesitation. He said, yes, we are seeing them at the same rate. And that, I think when we see or hear about the resignations across the healthcare industry that we think nurses and physicians and, you know, the folks that are dealing with the the waves of patients coming in, we don't really think about it at the, from the manager management and leadership perspective. But to hear that, it's like, oh, well, yeah, that makes total sense. Because when you think about, like he talked a little bit about the, the obligation they feel and even I think it's probably a little bit of the guilt they feel about the stressors that are happening. And, and so I do that. That stood out to me 100 percent because I, I had not really been thinking about it from a management perspective. Yeah, me too. I, I had that same thing as I was going through and listening to the podcast last night to prep for a conversation today. I kind of had forgotten almost about that. He brought that up and it was so interesting. And it really is that the management leaving is kind of like, oh, my. So not only are we losing the front line, we're losing the senior managers. And they're the people who are going to have to replace the front line. I actually felt pretty bad listening to that podcast. Pretty worried, actually. Right. So in addition, like the thing with the management leaving to me, a big part of our discussion was around what are the new normals that we're dealing with? And that is a lot to do with process and procedure for how to manage a department when when crises, crises happen. And if you're going to lose the leaders who have learned a ton from those crises – what are you going to do now? Now you're you're maybe turning to people who don't have a, as much experience, and um, I just that, again that, that kind of rocked my view of it for the moment, and <laughs> and I keep on thinking about. It. I'm like, oh, and, I, and you said you makes you nervous. We could talk about that as we go, but yeah, I, I felt a little nervous after that for sure. Yeah, that was that was definitely surprising because 
all of the research that I had done in, in also engaging with our clients has always been about the frontline contributors and our healthcare professionals. So hearing about the movement and resignation of the executives was was alarming for sure. Yeah. He used the word exhaustion like multiple times. And, you know, if you kind of think about it, we're all coming out of COVID. And I think everybody's exhausted by COVID on some level, one way or the other. And I don't want to go into the whole COVID path. But I think that this exhaustion level has really impacted the whole healthcare system. And we're heading towards a time, as we've talked about with some of our other guests, where we are going to have an increase in demand and a decrease in supply. You know, we were talking millions of shortages of people here in healthcare. And it starts to really worry about the people left behind who are going to get uh, stressed out and even more exhausted. Mm -hmm. I think about the frontline workers who, COVID aside, just the 55-plus population who's going to be retiring in the next 10 years and all of those mm -hmm. providers who are going to be leaving the system or all of those executives who are going to be leaving the system, and there's not a ton of people coming in to replace them um, on in either role. Not only that, when, when you think about the cycle of, of sort of moving up the chain at a hospital, for example, you know, you're going to have some maybe internal me medicine folks that might say, well, yeah, I'd like to be an executive now. And so as you lose those 55 plus and they start to retire, they're actually maybe more likely to retire earlier now. And again, we already have a shortage to from, from the, you know, if you think of it as like a, a cycle of going from you know, starting out as a hospitalist, then moving into a certain uh, practice and then moving up the chain. If if that cycle's not being replaced at the beginning, then, you know, your 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 foundation of people is is lacking. And so as the top rung moves out, the middle rung moves to the top rung, we're, we're just, again, we're, we're not fill, backfilling fast enough. And one thing that I thought was interesting is he, you guys had mentioned that when you, or he had brought up when you ask frontline workers what motivates them. Usually it's not the money that's going to be motivating them to stay in the position or why they got into medicine. But I couldn't help but thinking that might be what's preventing them from getting into medicine in the first place. So we don't have a large number of graduates coming out of med school or people being able to pursue med school just because it's so expensive. It's expensive. And, you know, I was thinking about this and you feel part of the analogy, but it kind of actually works. There's actually a scotch shortage right now, too, in the country. And you can't just create more scotch. It's got to age for 15 years. Right. We just can't magically snap our fingers and create new doctors, right? right. We got to get people to do take organic chemistry in college and then get them to go to med school. And then they got to go do their residency and then they got to work their way through. And so we're looking at the shortage and someone like Tim who has to staff people, he doesn't have people to actually staff. And in many regards, he's robbing Peter to pay Paul. It almost feels at times like there's just not enough people who want to do this job. And, and you look at all of the things that go into becoming a physician or even a, a, an NP, PA, whatever it might be. There's the the cost to get into college or to get through college. There's the, the time spent doing your residency. The time it takes you to actually get to be making money in this in this role is it's forever and a day away. And then you start seeing things in the news with like people coming into the you know, infectious diseases were with a camera trying to show that, you know, something is not the way the media is portraying it. Like, why would you want to be in that position? And all of these things kind of lead to that. He had mentioned executives need to try to find any way they can to bear hug those people and keep them. And that only works so well till they finally age out and they, they want to retire or something. Retainment is, is you're never going to get a hundred percent retainment. And so therefore what is happening from the bottom up? And, and, 
he, he did mention a couple ways of, of maybe governmental opportunities to try to refill the top of that funnel, not to you know make it a non-personal thing, but you know it's mm-hmm. it's definitely that has to be the way to go for sure. One thing that I'm seeing in our conversations with our clients is a shift towards NPs and PAs mm-hmm. as opposed to the specialists. It's less time and uh, financially expensive than going to med school for a specific specialty. So a lot of our agencies are going towards finding and recruiting and developing NPs and PAs um, because they're easier to find and you can still specialize in a particular area. Um, So I'm interested to see how that affects healthcare and the development of, I guess, innovation in different specialties if, if our workforce is largely coming from NPs and PAs. Right. There's the old saying, you want to practice at the top of your license. And so I think leveraging NPs and PAs is really critically important because I think that might be one of the shortest ways to getting more folks into the workforce. And it's like the old thing. You only want to go to like, you know, the major academic hospital in your favorite city. If you're unfortunately getting like a, a tier three or a really serious case, if you have a, a mild illness, don't go to the hospital, go to your local physician's office, right? So you want to maximize the right level of facility, you want to maximize the right level of physician or provider treating you. The other thing that I thought was interesting is you kind of talked about this, and Todd, I know you had a lot of perspective on this, was, you know, the cross-licensing and being able to cross state lines. Like, you know, I work in marketing. I live in Massachusetts, but I could go do marketing in New York City. I could go do marketing in Florida. It doesn't really matter to me. But and I get that marketing is not medicine and I'm not saving people's lives and stuff like that. I don't have any delusions of grandeur. Uh, but it was interesting as we loosened up all of these restrictions around cross licensing in COVID. It worked. We got doctors to where they needed to go. And now we're coming out of the pandemic. OK, let's put those restrictive rules back in place. And I'm kind of like, why? <laughs> right. You, you he mentioned, of course, New York State, how they're working on on things like that. But. And I, I keep thinking, and I thought of a lot about this after the, the the first podcast. There was state level is not going to work because if you look at the even now when when everything has been left up to the states to decide something, even like Medicare expansion, a Medicaid expansion, excuse me, the disparities in care across state lines is so huge. You are not going to get the buy-in from every state that someone like New York can do. Not only from a a political will perspective, but from a dollar value perspective, New York's going to put $10 billion into this. How many other states are going to be able to do the same thing? And granted, they're not all going to need to do $10 billion, but it needs to be something on the federal level that allows for, again, increased opportunities for for students getting in that top of the funnel to go to school. Maybe, again, cross-licensure across states. There has to be a federal mandate that says, yes, you can do this. These are the simpler hoops you have to cross as opposed to, hey, no, this state does it this way and that's what state does it the other way. It has to just be easier to allow for that movement. Let me ask you this. What do you think are the benefits of or did we think were the benefits of these state-bound restrictions? That is a great question. (laughs) I don't – I mean, again, my opinion is – there is not a benefit to states being able to make up their own rules mm-hmm. on something that is – I mean, in, if somebody has diabetes in Texas versus Idaho, it's the same disease. It's right. the same treatment pathway, pathways. Why are we making different rules for a doctor to treat in one state versus the other? Like right. disease doesn't change based on your geography. So and patients aren't bound by state. I can seek care in any state 
Yeah. It, it's sure. probably, you know, and I'll speculate a way out of what I actually know, but hey, I'll speculate anyways, because why not? Uh, if you look at it, it's very similar to kind of like law degrees. You only can get licensed in a certain state. And it's almost like, I guess, join the bar in a certain state. You know, you almost could argue it's a relic of a previous time. And, you know, we were much more geographically centered. People were less transient. And, you know, I didn't trust my neighbor over the state border because they're different than I am. And I don't know what those people in Iowa are doing. I'm living in New York City, right? Who knows what they are? And the people in Iowa are like, I don't know what those people in New York City are. They got no standards. And so, you know, we'll have our own boards for medicine. We'll have our own boards for law. And you got to get licensed or join the bar in our state in order to practice here. And then that might even be a little bit of a financial model because you got to pay for to get the license in your state. And so that's money making for the states. But I think we can agree. I mean, that's that not a good reason. It's not a good reason. <laughs> it, I think this model's probably past its time. Interesting. No question. And, you know, it's almost you can't have the same model that you do with like building codes as for for therapeutics or for, for treating patients. It just makes no sense. It's apples and oranges. Why are we trying to fit the same model for things that don't fit each other? So, yeah. Justin, you had mentioned a few a few times, I feel, I have these really alarming stats. And <laughs> I, I feel like you said it like six times. And every time we have these conversations and I read through these things and I, I re-listen to our conversation, I'm like, yeah, I'm getting pretty alarmed by these things. So it like it was actually a little bit of a stress-inducing a uh, re-review of things for sure. I, I had the same reaction <laughs> as well, right? You know, let's just stress everybody else out again, right? right. So, you know, <laughs> one in five physicians, two in five nurses intend to leave their current practice like in the next two years. Good Lord, right? Uh, I think, you know, another side, we've talked a lot about health equity or inequity in these different podcasts, you know, 60% of the rural regions do not have enough healthcare workers to meet the needs of their population. 60% of the world population. I mean, good Lord, that's terrifying to me. You know, we are going to have a gap. This was actually one that Tim brought up. He brought, I like the Tim brought data to the conversation too. He brought some good data. We're going to have a gap of over 400,000 home health aides. These aren't even people who, you know, are NPs. These are people who are going to people's homes, 400,000 there. We're going to have a gap of almost a million nurses. So yeah, I don't know what to do with all of these stats. I think I'm going to go out and hug my doctor this afternoon and tell him, please don't retire. I think my doctor's like probably in his mid-50s. I've been with him for like 15 years. Uh, for those of you who have been following this podcast, I alluded to the fact I hadn't had a physical earlier. I had one recently. I'm good to go. Thank you. Yeah. I'm not going to die. Practice what you preach. Practice what I preach. Uh, but yeah, I didn't hug him at the last visit. Now I'm thinking I probably should hug him and say, thank you. Keep practicing medicine. Listen, our directives to our listeners just get progressively more intimate with your doctors, apparently, over the last couple episodes. Wow. All right. Here we go. Thanks, Brittany. Yeah. So, Brittany, when we were talking earlier, you said to me, hey, man, staffing's my gig. What did you mean by Staffing is my bag. So what is that? Yeah, I come from a staffing background. So before Definitive Healthcare, I was a recruiter and staffing manager at Robert Half. And while I didn't staff in the healthcare space, I felt the squeeze of available candidates. I felt the squeeze of employers needing more help than they had access to in the market. And I was I was recruiting at a time when a lot of folks were gainfully employed and not looking to move around. So I'm grateful for that for them and for for the world that we were in at that point. Um, yeah, recruiting is tough when you're only looking for self-identified candidates. And if everyone's resigning, no one wants to be a candidate. So filling these jobs is is a challenge. For sure. I, I really liked his idea of 
the a, a chief talent officer being involved in the healthcare, like for a health system or a hospital or, or you know whatever healthcare organization they're working at, to create a hybrid approach to do something like this. Because again, even for definitive healthcare, for any other other organization out there, to be able to have a a good talent organization, it's different from HR. It is looking for the right people to fill those shoes. And if you can't just say, we're going to hire a million recruiters to try hire 100 people, it, it's, none of that makes sense. So if you can leverage some other type of industry standard thing, like like a recruiting agency, you know, it makes all the, all the difference to ensure that you get that speed to hire done faster. Because again, I'm still alarming at all these stats, that, that one out of five physicians and two out of five nurses thinking we'll leave in the next two years, Good Lord. Yeah. It's, they need, we need proactive pieces. The only problem with it is we're already so far behind that, you know, if these are all great ideas and it's almost like every health organization has to literally tomorrow go out and make sure you go do this. A great boom for people who are CTOs for sure. But when are we going to see that those steps taking place and more healthcare orgs taking the plunge in implementing that type of, of, strategy. Yeah. You know, so we work in a software company. I think all of our listeners know, and we have a chief talent officer here and I've spent my whole career working in software. We've always had chief talent officers. And Tim actually mentioned the fact, he said, you know, when we recruit for IT or legal or financial services or engineering, you hear culture as a word thrown out a lot more than you hear in the healthcare. And to some degree, you could argue, and maybe that's because physicians are a little bit of like lone wolves. I practice my own business. I practice my own I run my own practice, excuse me. I've got my own uh, cohort of patients. And yeah, I'm affiliated with the hospital, but I'm really with the hospital because I need access to their facilities, not because I feel like I'm part of the hospital. And so you're trying to create a chief talent officer, trying to create a culture where the very culture isn't having a culture. And that felt very different to me versus, you know, we talk all the time about our company culture and how important it is and why we all like to work here. And that's a retaining a reason why people stick around here because they like the culture, and it wasn't there in healthcare. Right. I, I think that the incentivization for, you know, moving to a rural area to work at a, a rural healthcare clinic or hospital, whatever it might be, and, and culture certainly is an incentive for sure, especially for people who might get burned out in certain, you know, large metro areas and, and moving to a smaller area for that. You know, uh, I think he mentioned things like the cost of living and, and real estate and things like that. But the culture piece, to be able to go somewhere and not feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders every single day, like that is certainly something that should be played up more. But but the idea to take strategies that software companies and other types of companies have used in the past and apply them to the healthcare model, that's I think that's a, it just needs to happen now, like right now. Everybody who might be listening, go out and do that right now. <laughs> Let me ask you this. With the numbers looking the way they are, do you think that this is a matter of inefficient culture and talent development or is, do you think we just don't have enough people? I think it's we don't have enough people to start with. But then I think about what can we do? And, you know, that, that's always what I always come back to because I don't like to be the guy who just moans all the time and complains <laughs> and this sucks and that sucks. I don't like doing do anything. <laughs> <laughs> OK, good. Uh, but I always think, look, what can we do about that? And, you know, you guys also know I'm like mildly obsessed with like this retail model of like getting the NPs at CVSs and Walmart and Walgreens and every place else. And I think if we start and we collectively all of our listeners, plus the three of us in the room here, 
start going to locations like that to get some of the care that we might otherwise be going to doctor's offices for or going to, you know, hospitals or ERs, everybody can kind of balance the burden a little bit. And that might be a way, an action that everybody can take without really changing their lives too much. Right. I, I do think, too, like starting to do that, it gives at least the perception among the agencies that will accredit physicians with different specialties and so on that, you know, it has to be an easier way for those, for PAs and MPs to like move into an MD role. And, you know, the easier we can make those pathways, maybe the the lesser of the restriction of, of new doctors in the market will become. Like, heck, I say, you know, Brittany, if you do five more he- medical health claimant reports, you should get your MD. That's how easy it should be. It shouldn't be that easy. It shouldn't be that <laughs> I, easy. I assure you I'm it good. should not be that easy. I'm going to go with her on that one. All right. All right. Hey, I'm trying to come up with ideas and solutions here, Justin. I love it. I love it. I am CPR certified. That's a start. But you do not want me delivering your medicine. (laughs) Or delivering it, sure. Prescribing, maybe not. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I'll bring you some Advil. That's about it. That's good. Yeah. Baby steps. (laughs) The the one of the big things that, and again, to to kind of, the the thing that I kept coming back to was, you know, the, the crisis moment that we feel. Like people, we're beyond a critical state. And people, people meaning, you know, those in the healthcare organization uh, executive branch need to treat it like a crisis. And that means you can't wait for, you know, a governmental agency to make a decision. We need to start making even alliances among, you know, regional health groups or or, uh, regional organizations that might have even be competing for talent. Like there has to be some way to you know, maybe take that New York model and try to nationalize it. And it, it has to be a groundswell going up because, you know, we mentioned or you had mentioned that the disparities in health for rural areas or, or through state state lines from state line to state line. So if, if we were to wait for a governmental agency to say, oh, yeah, here's what we'll do on a federal level, it's going to be too late. And, and part of the problem is that most of the people who are in the political class, they're getting their health care. They're not worried about it. Like, hey, I see my PCP. What's the big deal? So it has to be from a perspective of the people that are on the front lines. And I count anybody working at a hospital now as on the front lines. And those are the people that have to start. And again, they do, you know, lobby the government for certain things. But it's more of a a do now and ask forgiveness later type situation. One thing that I think that clients could do, and this is speaking directly to the staffing agencies right Mm -hmm. now, is to create profiles for both your candidates and your your companies that you're targeting. Tim had mentioned creating uh, candidate profiles about mm-hmm. what drives them, what are their financial, cultural, and their academic interests and what motivates them. I would do the same thing for your clients. That way you're making better matches on culture and personality of mm-hmm. both your, your client and your cost, your candidate so that they're more likely to stay around. So that if you can match those rural-seeking candidates to rural companies, or if you want those, you know, high-paced, fast-paced, what's the word? Fast-paced? Fast-paced. Called fast-paced, yeah, sure. Yeah, fast-paced environments or, you know, high-energy academic settings that you're placing the right candidates in the right places. So really evaluating all of your companies and really evaluating all of your candidates so that you're making those culture matches. So it was like a dating app. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Side hustle. No. Always got to have a side hustle. Tinder for doctors. Oh. I can guarantee that probably already exists. <laughs> that part needs to be cut probably. 
Good. Any parting thoughts in what Tim had to say? Uh, crisis, do something now, don't wait. Yeah. Yeah. And I think own it, right? I think we all have to own it. We can't just point and say we need more doctors. That's not getting fixed tomorrow. Absolutely. Right? I think we all have to think what can we do out there to kind of, A, a take care of yourself, as I'll continue to preach to everybody, and B, we all need to find the right level of care at the right location. I think that's a key thing that we need to be doing. Don't be afraid to go see the PA at CVS or any of the uh, retail clinics. Retail, right? Any retail. Any location. retail. We are we agnostic do. here. 100%. Any retail location that does not have Brittany as your provider. Yes, I would agree with that. That is key for I'm, sure. I'm not agnostic on that last point. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Good. 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 <laughs> All right, so that brings us to the end here of this Afterwards episode. I want to thank you all for listening to Definitively Speaking, a definitive healthcare podcast. Please join me next week for a conversation with Karen McNulty, President of Behavioral Health and Resources for Living at CVS Health. As many of you know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Kara and I will have a conversation around the importance of mental health and well-being and how CVS Health is making mental health treatment as easy to get as treatment for a sprained ankle. If you like what you've heard today, Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, please follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care and please stay healthy. <laughs>